Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Oh, today has been a whirlwind. Do you ever just have days where you're like, how is it already the end of the day? I usually record this like three hours earlier. <laughs> so I don't know. I do not know where my day went. I have so many different things going. Um, and I record this on a Monday. So it's, you know, just jump into the week, like get ready, slaps you in the face. Sometimes it feels that way, you know? And I was, um, I made time for yoga today before I did this because I was like, I need to like feel myself like grounded, present so that I can be here with you and for you and like actually participate. And so, I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful for you. Sometimes I I think that just hearing what other people do always sparks things in me. Like when I hear from my friends or people I follow online, sharing how they like manage stressful situations or feeling overwhelmed, then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try that. So maybe if that is helpful for you, you can try that out yourself too. Sometimes I find just like not even meditating, but for me, it's just taking some deep breaths and doing some stretching. Like it doesn't even have to be like a formal yoga class. I can just do like a five, 10 minute check-in. Yoga with Adrian is a great resource on YouTube. I prefer personally poweryoga.com. Brian Kest is my man. I went to his classes in Santa Monica for, oh God, you guys, probably like 10 years, maybe longer, maybe like 15 years. Anyway, how old was I when I started going there? Like 20, I was in grad school. So like 23, 24. Um, so yeah, long time anyway. And the studio closed the year before COVID and it was just a bummer for me. And somebody has online stuff now. So I get to uh, access Brian that way. And he is wonderful. I can't recommend him enough. And it's only 15 bucks a month, which makes, you know, it's a very reasonable price. So anyways, I'm off on a tangent, but doing something to help myself feel grounded and present and just be aware of my body helps me feel okay when the world feels like it's swirling too fast or I feel like I'm being pulled in a million directions or too much is being asked of me. It kind of just helps me take a moment. So I took that moment so that I can be here with you and answer your questions. And today we actually have 11 questions and that is because sometimes it just works this way where as I'm working my way through the ones with the most thumbs ups, that's how I pick these questions. At the very, you know, as I'm getting down toward the end, We'll have a bunch that have the same amount of likes. And so I want to include them all, but I also want to pick a random one. And that's why we have that 11th one. I picked a random. So I do my best. And if you don't get your question answered, I am sorry, but I am doing my best to get through as many of them as possible. So this first question is a good one, as they all are every week. You guys are wonderful. This question says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I was wondering, do therapists have to like their patients? I've always had the fear that secretly my therapist doesn't like me and that I'm a burden to her. And every time our session ends, she's probably relieved. I don't have any proof that this is true though, by the way. But I was wondering, what would you do when you realize that you don't like your patient? Would you refer them out or see them anyways? I thought this was a great question. And the truth is, therapists do not have to like their patients. I think that's an interesting 
and maybe difficult thing for people to comprehend. Because if you think about it, therapy isn't about me as the therapist. It's about you as the patient. And as someone who's also been in their own therapy forever, it's it's hard. It's difficult. Even as even though I know it, it's difficult sometimes for me to understand it, right? And to accept it. Because I'm a people pleaser, right? You guys know that. And I want my therapist to like me, but she'll never, she would never have given me that kind of uh, affirmation because it would just feed into what what we're trying to fight against, which is me being that people pleaser, right? So anyways, I don't want to get off too off topic, but therapists do not have to like their patients, but that doesn't mean that they can't still help them. And I think I know this isn't what people want to hear because again, the people pleasing and the feeling, the lack of confidence, us feeling like we're just trash and our therapist doesn't really like us and doesn't want to help us. And we shouldn't be taking this appointment from anyone else. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my time. Patients saying like, well, someone else probably could use this hour. Like maybe I'll take a break. And I'm like, no, we're not there yet. Like your goals still have yet to be met and we're making progress. You know, I'll have to talk some patients down from that. Like, it's okay for you to take up space. It's okay for you to get the help you need. It's okay. You deserve it. You need it. You can ask for it. And I know sometimes that's really hard for us to comprehend and we can have a lot of different reasons why that's difficult. It could be everything from past trauma, which you know leads to a lot of shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment, things like that. <clears throat> it could also you know, come from like an addicted home. Those of us who have addiction in a parent can struggle with boundaries and we can feel that other people's emotions are our emotions. And so we go around in the world, like trying to feel people out. And then we reach a therapist who doesn't give us any of that. And we're like, wait, I need information. How do I respond if I don't know how you feel, right? We can struggle with things like that. Or if we're just, um, you know, kind of enmeshed, like we want, we, we've never had boundaries with anyone, Having a therapist who has them can make us feel like they don't like us because it's very different and uncomfortable. So there's just a lot going on in therapy. But the truth is that therapists do not have to like their patients. I've had patients over the years that are extremely difficult. They fight me at every turn. They don't want to try the homework or they lie and say they did. And then later we find out they didn't because, you know, they slip up on what they say or they bring in their partner or their parent. And I learned that way. Um, but that doesn't actually matter because I still show up for them. I still work just as hard. And then there's been patients also because we're people, right? There's patients that I really connect with that feel like, oh, actually, like we could be friends in another life, you know, because once someone's my patient, I would never see them socially. I know we can after, is it three years, something like three or five years. I just don't think it's appropriate. Um, but there's been a lot of people that I wished I could be friends with. So I know that's not an exact answer to your question, but the truth is that we do not have to like our patients, but it actually doesn't matter. And I know it's really hard for us to understand that and accept it because I know we want that affirmation. We want that acceptance. We want that, I don't know, that support, right? We want to know that they're, they like us. We're people pleasers or we need that uh, attention and affirmation. And yeah, so the last question is, I was wondering what you would do when you realize you don't like your patient. Would you refer them out? No, I would I would not. The only reason I would refer someone out is if that dislike or upset or, which honestly, 
it'd be my own ish, right? If that would be what's called counter transference, where I'm taking what's happening in our session, I'm making it about me, and then I'm transferring that back out to my patient and creating this toxic dynamic between patient and therapist. And so if that was happening, I would have to refer someone out. So let's say, I don't know, for instance, um, let's say I had an abusive boyfriend. I, I have not, thank God, but let's say I had, and then I end up seeing a a male who reminds me of that boyfriend in my practice and he is also abusing his girlfriend and I'm very suspicious that he is or whatever. Um, it might be hard for me to separate my situation from that and be the best fit for him. So I might refer him out. That's kind of how that would work. But it's not just like or don't like. That's, uh, I'm, I know it's hard, but that's just not what therapy is about. Therapists, I mean, we're people, so we might you know, like I said, some people are more difficult or some people are more motivated or whatever, but it's not about us. It's about you. And it's very interesting that we would worry so much about that. And I know you guys probably hate that answer, but that is the truth. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question asks, Katie, does someone actually recover completely from trauma or abuse that has occurred resulting in CPTSD, which stands for complex PTSD, which, which happens when we have uh, we've lived through multiple traumas? Or is it actually having healthy coping me uh, mechanisms to minimize the symptoms as they occur with the hope that over time they disappear re from retraining your body and brain? I've always wondered if there would be just a simple, okay, it's gone now that I've been in therapy for three years and talked through it all. Or is it actually lasting with manageable coping? Okay, and then somebody else asked a comment on top of this, and they said, also, can someone recover from trauma without trauma treatment that includes desensitization? These are wonderful questions. Okay, so let's start at the top. Can people recover completely from trauma? Yes. Now, the way that I like to view mental illness as a whole, so we'll start with all mental illness, then I'll get into trauma more specifically. So when it comes to mental illness, I like to compare our mental health with our physical health. Now, if we have a mental illness like depression and we get treatment, whether that's therapy and medication or just therapy or whatever, right? We get the symptoms to go away. Does that mean they'll be gone forever? No. Just in the same way, if I get a cold and I go to the doctor and let's say I get some antibiotics, does that mean I'm never going to get a cold again? Unfortunately, no. So that means that even if the treatment that I got resolved my symptoms now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to need those tools and techniques later because life is unpredictable, right? It can throw us some curveballs and it can be really stressful. And during those really intensive times, we might find some of our old symptoms coming back and we're going to need to utilize those tools and techniques again. Cool. So when we talk about trauma, now let's dig in deeper. Talk about trauma. The goal of quote unquote recovery is to get us to a point where our past trauma is not affecting us so much in our day-to-day -day life that we aren't able to function. We're trying to get us to a point where we can be around certain triggers or stimuli. We could talk with someone about, like we could say, yeah, oh, I was in a car crash, you know, like two years ago or whatever. But I mean, you know, it was very scary at the time, but I've been through a lot of therapy and I feel okay. We can kind of talk through things. People could even ask questions about it. Like, where did it happen? And were you driving? And, and we could give them information and it wouldn't throw us into, you know, dissociation, panic attack, we wouldn't have hypervigilance, wouldn't feel our palms get sweaty or our heart start to race. We wouldn't have any of that. We call that emotional charge. And the goal of trauma treat, treatment as a whole is to get us to a point where we have no emotional charge related to the trauma. Okay. And so 
Yes, you can recover completely. However, going back to my initial example about depression and if things get overwhelming, it can come back. It's the same with our PTSD. If we don't take care of ourselves, if we aren't sleeping well and our job is super stressful and let's say we're we're moving and we've been through a breakup or we had a fight with our parent, there could be a bunch of things happening all at once. We can start to slide back into some of those old behaviors. We can find ourselves being more hypervigilant or or more emotional when we talk about the past trauma, whatever it may be, right? So it can still, it doesn't like go away forever. It's not like magic, it's gone. But we can get us to a point where it doesn't bother us day to day and we're able to talk about it. Um, But again, just like cold, just like our physical health, we have to take care of ourselves. And there's no real time frame. It's not like, oh, three years. Some people, it takes six months. Some people, it takes, you know, two years, three years, six years. I don't know. Everybody's different because it's all about our ability to stay present, meaning not in fight, flight, freeze, or dissociated or in panic while we slowly work through the situation. And that could be through somatic experiencing where we try to move that energy out of our body, or that could be through schema therapy or through just basic talk therapy, trying to talk it through into a narrative form or any other EMDR. There's a ton of different treatments for trauma. And everybody, unfortunately, I know people hate this answer, but everybody goes at their own pace. And the key to it is actually finding a therapist who's good at what they do and who you connect with. And so, yeah, so in a way, it's kind of a little bit of both. You you do really recover, but you know it it is around. It's still hanging there somewhere. But we have to have those coping skills, so it becomes managed by coping, so that it no longer affects our life in a way that is in any way debilitating. Does that make sense? And then the the question in the comment about like, can you recover without a treatment that includes desensitization? I believe you can. I don't think it's ideal from my experience um, and from what I've researched. I think that desensitization is needs to be part of it because we're going to have a ton of triggers that we sense in our environment. You know, what is it? It's like through, I think, is it smell is the strongest one, um, but sound also music. And I, I'd argue like all five senses can really be triggering. We're going to want to be desensitized to that in some effect where we have tools and ways to calm our system down. Because if we don't, then every time we hear that thing or see that certain, you know, I don't hear that song, smell that scent, whatever it may be, we will associate that with the trauma and have some kind of trauma response. And yeah, it it proves to our brain then that that's actually scary and that it's something to be feared. But if we desensitize, if we work kind of an exposure therapy type way, then we slowly prove to our brain that there's nothing actually to be feared and that we are you know, safe and protected now and we're okay. And so I believe that, yes, there is quite a lot of trauma treatment that could be beneficial for people that does not include desensitization. I just believe that desensitization has been proven to be the most effective. Does that make sense? Okay. I hope so. But everybody's different. So I don't want anybody to think, oh, you've got to do X, Y, or Z because there's a different recipe for each person. And I want you all to know that you can get help and it can get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie, how can a trauma survivor tell the difference between truly toxic behavior and just human mistakes? Sometimes I wonder if people around me are truly toxic or if I'm just being paranoid and hypervigilant from my CPTSD. 
Remember, that's complex PTSD. I feel like mental health communities tend to be feel, filled with messages about the toxicity of others, narcissists, abusers, etc. But those are the minority, right? The majority of people are just normal, flawed humans who can sometimes be jerks. Yes, you are correct. The problem is, how can we tell the difference? There was a comment on this from a member of our community, Amber, who's been wonderful and offering people a lot of uh, very sage advice that was right up the alley of what I want to say. So I'm just going to start there. Somebody doing something once is just somebody being a jerk or maybe not even knowing. Somebody repeatedly doing it, like a pattern of bad behavior, is when that becomes truly toxic. Because we all make mistakes. Nobody is perfect. And sometimes we do things we don't realize can be perceived or interpreted by another person as a jerky thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I might do something and not think a thing of it. And Sean's like, you didn't realize that you like put that right in the way where I was trying to do this, you know, like, and I'd be like, oh, I didn't know. But if he never said that to me, you could just think, oh, Katie's so selfish and such a jerk. She blocked that way for me and made that so much harder than I had to move, you know, I know that's like not a very clear example, but you know what I mean, that we can like, okay, let's say I'm leaving a store and I cannot realize there's someone behind me and I can let the door slam behind me and not like give way, like for a couple seconds, hold it so they can get a hold of it. Do you know what I mean? And so you'd be like, oh, what a jerk, right? We do things on accident or we have bad days and we can do things that are not, you know, not healthy, not loving, not communicative. But if it becomes a pattern, that's when others are toxic. And I have to throw this in here, and I know people probably won't like this answer and will be mad, but we're responsible still for who we engage with, what we allow ourselves to be subject to, and how we respond. And I find there are a ton, like this person saying, these mental health communities filled with messages about how everybody else is toxic. And I'm here to tell you, if you look around your, your world and your environment and everybody, parents, friends, siblings, co-workers, if you're like, everybody is all fucked up and they're all toxic, maybe you should take some time and look inside yourself because the only thing all those people have in common is you. And I know that that is hard. And I know that that actually takes work and effort and honesty with ourselves, which is very difficult. But that's where the true healing comes from is recognizing our role in these relationships. I just finished a six-week relationship workshop. You can actually still purchase it if you want. Um, we recorded everything and all the homework and worksheets are still downloadable. But I did this workshop and a huge component of it was just doing this introspection, this inside work, because yes, other people around us can be narcissists. They can be abusers. I'm not telling anyone you should engage with those people or let them off the hook or that it's your fault they did this to you. I'm just saying that in every relationship, there are two people. And even if we were in an abusive relationship, did we stay for a long time past the initial abuse? Why was that? <clears throat> Let's think about it. Let's do some of that work, some of that digging into is it because we struggle with our, <clears throat> excuse me, is it because we struggle with our own self-confidence or self-worth? Is it because that's the only type of relationship we've ever known? Is it because we felt dependent on them financially? I mean, there's a gazillion reasons why things can happen. And I really think that it is key. This introspection is key in us moving forward and not having that same situation happen again. Does that make sense? So it's like, in order for us to, to ensure that we don't get into another toxic relationship with a narcissist or an abusive person, we need to figure out why on earth we're attracted to them. 
Why do we want to be friends with that person? Why do we want to date that person? What is it about me that is like a fly trap for, you know, toxic people? Doing that will allow us to then put out the different vibes <clears throat> so that we end up in other relationships that are more healthy. Sorry, I've got a tickle in my throat. Okay, so I know that, again, I don't mean that to be judgmental. I am not telling you that something's wrong with you and you're, it's your fault that they did these things. I'm just saying that it is important for us to recognize our role in the toxicity and how we can ensure that we don't continue relationships like that. We want to make sure that we break out of that pattern. And if we don't consider our role in it, there's no way we can break out. We can't look out to other people expecting them to be the ones to always change when we're not changing, right? We can't, it's like if we're trying to, I don't know, cap, uh, capture bees, right? We might put out some some certain flowers or sticky sweet something and they'll come around, but we can't put out something sticky sweet and expect to catch, I don't even know you guys, a mosquito. I don't know why you want to catch a mosquito. Do you get what I'm saying though? It's like, you're going to get, or maybe let's say this, I can put out my sticky sweet thing and I can catch a bear, <clears throat> but I can't put out my sticky sweet thing and expect to catch uh, a cat let's say, right? They're going to want food or something different. Maybe, I don't know. I hope that that makes sense. It's like we're putting out the same lure into the world and wondering why we're not, we're not catching different fish. I guess that's a much better analogy. I knew I'd come around to it. I just had to stay with it. Um, so anyways, I don't want to get, I'm already way in the weeds on that and I apologize, but I think that that, that's an important component. And yes, this person says those people are the mi minority. Yes. Like truly toxic abusers, narcissists, there are, I think it's like 5% of the population, which is a large amount of people, but that's by far not the majority, right? That means 95% of people are not that. And so even though they're out there, if you find that everywhere, like I said, if you look around and everybody is toxic and everybody's narcissistic and everybody's an abuser, consider what lure you're putting out into the world and why you've caught all of these and how our, our, uh, way of inter interacting in our relationships has come to this, why, why this is what we've got, right? So consider your role and then how to break out of that pattern is to change, change your lure, change how you interact with people and how you communicate and put yourself out there in the world. I hope that makes sense. And again, I don't mean to offend, but we all play our own role in our relationships and we're each responsible for cleaning our side of the street. Okay. <clears throat> Let's move on to question number four. And it says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. When I'm experiencing the very low lows of my mental health, I find myself in an uncontrollable deep dive into mental health educational content. Ooh, yeah, people can do this. I'll re-listen to your podcast that I've already listened to repeatedly and binge your YouTube videos in a totally, in a totally not creepy way. <laughs> that's, that, that's what they're there for, to be a resource. It's almost as, as if focusing my time and energy directly into what I'm suffering with is a coping mechanism. It could be. It's almost like proving to yourself that you have a right to feel how you feel, maybe. It brings a lot of comfort and validation to me and allows me to, quote unquote, check out. Unfortunately, I feel like it hinders my recovery as it feels like I'm intentionally placing myself into a position of dwelling on my mental illness, but I can't stop it. Obsessively researching what I've been going through is something I've done since I was a preteen and I'm 21 currently. 
It has helped me get through a lot of traumatic experiences since I never openly shared them with my parents until now in life. Is this a form of maladaptive daydreaming? I wouldn't say it's that. Does this stem from attachment to my mental illness? I wouldn't even say it's that. Or is it a reflection of the trauma I've experienced? Also, this is an issue. um, Is this an issue worth bringing up with my therapist? I just started going. Thanks. Yes. Bring this up with your therapist. Now, I think it's potentially a reflection of the trauma you've experienced. I do not think it stems from attachment to your mental illness. I don't even believe that's a thing. I know that we can identify and believe that our mental illness is like who we are, not just something that we're struggling with or something that we're trying to manage, which I think is a little bit unhealthy. We should see it in the same way. I wouldn't say like I am the flu virus if I got the flu or I am, you know, strep throat. I would just say I have it. And I think that externalizing mental illness in that way is really healthy and really helpful and allows us to come up with better solutions for it and better ways to manage. And we can be more motivated and more apt to make change when we don't feel like it's like it's part of who I am. You know, um, I know that that's like easier said than done, but I think that's really key in understanding your mental illness and overcoming it, making it more manageable, right? So, okay. When you want to deep dive into educational content in a way, so there's two things that I think are happening here. Number one, I would be suspicious of the fact that I think, or I guess my hypothesis is that by binging on this kind of educational content, we are trying to prove that we deserve to feel how we feel, that we actually have a mental illness and we have a right to whatever, right? We're like trying to make ourselves feel like like what, how, we, how we're doing is warranted. We're like wanting to get proof or validation, which is fine some of the time. But I, I mean, if you were my patient, my encouragement to you would be like, what's up, how can you offer that to yourself without the use of, you know, Katie's podcasts and videos? I love that they're a resource for you, but it sounds like in some ways they might be hindering, right? So we've got to figure this out. So there, I would, I'd be curious about that and I'd ask you questions and I'd want you to know, want you to try to come up with some other ways to offer it to yourself. And what does that look like? And why is it that you only believe it if someone else says it? I'd be very curious about that. And then it can also, so that's one, right? Remember I said there are two. The second is I find, at least from my patients, and maybe this is because I specialize in eating disorder treatment and self-injury, but a lot of my patients have told me that they use information like that kind of as a way to self-injure, almost like to re-traumatize or re-upset themselves. And because we're, so so hear me out, this is gonna sound strange, but I'm just here to tell you this is very common. The reason we use it so much in the same way that traditional self-injury, like if we are cutting or burning ourselves or hurting ourselves in some way, it gives us a release and it can feel like an expression of all the pain that we feel. And so when we're using uh, videos, podcasts, and these outside resources, it's almost like we're re-injuring ourselves with the pain of whatever it is, right? We're hearing someone talk about it. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And it feels soothing because it's a way, it's expressing what we're going through in a way we can't. So it's like we're, we're injuring ourselves with that information because it's not making you feel better. You don't think it's actually helpful. In the same way, self-injury, people, you know, or like, oh, it helps, but then it makes things worse. And then I don't like it. And da, 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 you know, <clears throat> it can be just like that. So I think in some ways when we ob- obsessively research and read and watch and listen and do all this stuff to learn more about ourselves, I think in some ways we're like kind of self-injuring. 
And I don't mean that, I don't want you to like think, oh, oh my God, but I didn't think this is not a judgment zone. This is just better understanding of what's going on and why we're doing it. And I think you're doing it out of a way of self-soothing. My self-injurers do that too. That's what self-injury gives them. It's very soothing. And so we have to find other ways to soothe, which is what I always call like building up your resources. Meaning when we start to feel in those low lows, what's something else we can do? Do we want to potentially consider medication? Maybe we do. You started seeing your therapist. Maybe we should bring it up with them and get some other resources. Things like impulse logs. I love if you go to self-injury, I think it's selfinjury.org. Let me just pull it up. Yep, selfinjury.com and go into their resources and then go to how to use the impulse control log. I love that resource and I think it is great. Um, And so you could do some of those. Maybe you journal about a little bit. Maybe you go for a walk. Maybe you pet an animal. Maybe you talk to a friend. Maybe you, you know, email your therapist or prepare for your next session. There's a lot of things that we can do that can be soothing and feel productive and helpful in our mental health journey rather than feeling like we're pulling ourselves down. Because sometimes as much as, you know, I love that my videos and podcasts and things can be helpful. Sometimes if we're already struggling, we need more of a distraction. We don't actually need more information. We already know, you know, um, maybe listen to one of Sean and I's podcasts, opinions that don't matter. It's totally not helpful at all. <laughs> um, I hope that helps. I hope that makes sense. And again, this is not a space for judgment. It's just better understanding so that we can find tools and do things a little differently so that we feel better. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And it says, hi, Katie, can you explain the differences, if there are any, between dissociation, the freeze response, and panic attacks? Thank you so much. I wondered if this should become an entire video, and I might turn that into it, because I think this is something that's very important for people to understand. So, okay, dissociation does live in the freeze response, but it doesn't always happen. Okay, so First, let's talk about dissociation. Dissociation is when our brain pulls the ripcord. That's that's just the best way I can describe it. It's like everything is overwhelming. My body feels overwhelmed. I feel emotionally overwhelmed. I got to get out of here. And it pulls that ripcord. It's like out plops our, um, whatchamacallit, parachute. (laughs) Wow. Our parachute pulls us away from our body or our environment. And it does that so that we're not as conscious of what's going on, so that we're not so aware of the details. That's why a lot of trauma memories are hard to recall or they might not be there at all is because we were dissociated. It's overwhelming and our body and brain does it as a way to cope to get us through. Now, it's obviously adaptive and helpful sometimes, but a lot of times it's super dangerous and we can get to a point where we don't have any control over when it happens. I mean, we never really have any control over when it happens until we get control over our emotions and how we feel and recognizing the symptoms of it early on. But it, it can pull us out. And we can be driving and not remember getting home. You know, it can be pretty dangerous. So that's where dissociation comes from. And it is part of PTSD, but I believe it should be, you know, I believe it's a spectrum from like maladaptive daydreaming all the way to dissociative identity disorder. And I feel like it should be better. I don't know. The DSM has so many flaws. And one of them is the way that they describe dissociation because they only describe it as part of PTSD and as dissociative identity disorder, which is otherwise known as multiple personality disorder. And so I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot of spectrum that isn't, you know, ref, I don't know, isn't like properly researched and referenced in the DSM. So, okay. So that's what dissociation is. 
Now, freeze happens when we, if you guys don't know about our stress response, it's fight, flight, or freeze. Now, fight, flight is what what our body actually wants to do. When we are in a th- under threat or in an extremely stressful situation, our body wants to either fight, yeah, or run away, ah, right? Either way, it does that to keep us safe, to allow us to continue, right? It's evolutionary and it, it makes sure that we live on to see tomorrow. But when those aren't an option, usually when we're children, this is where it happens most, or it could just be situations in which we are just, we have to play possum, like we have to play dead because we are either, you know, there's too many people against us in the situation or we are just too weak comparative to the person. There's a lot of different reasons this can happen. It doesn't feel safe to fight flight, right? We don't feel like we have another option. We freeze. Now, freeze in and of itself is not dissociation. Freeze just applies, or I guess it just is the way that we describe the fact that we can't fight or flight. We are forced to not do anything to like play dead, right? Or um, or we can dissociate because a lot of people do dissociate in the freeze state, but it's not, it's not always the case. Does that make sense? It's like dissociation can happen when we freeze, but that's not 100% of the time. Some people just feel like, well, I just didn't know what to do, so I just froze and then they left and it was okay, but they're present. They're not dissociated. And that just has to do with people's levels of resilience and what we're able to manage during that state. I hope that's clear. But we do believe, just as an FYI, that it's out of that freeze state that trauma is born when we're not able to fight or flight. It's not saying that trauma can't happen in other areas because it can as well. Like we see that with veterans all the time, right? They were fighting and they still are traumatized. But in that freeze response where we feel hopeless or helpless, um, they believe that that almost always is an indicator of having, you know, long-lasting PTSD symptoms. Okay. So finally, panic attacks. Now, panic attacks, again, are kind of in the way that we talk about the freeze response where panic attacks themselves do not always mean that we dissociate. But some people, again, because depending on how much we can manage, that panic attack may be overwhelming to our system. Ah, Our brain pulls the ripcord. But different people are going to have different experiences. And not everyone who has a panic attack dissociates during it, but sometimes it happens. Now, panic attacks are the same as anxiety attacks. I know people try to like tease out language sometimes, and I'm like, it just gets too confusing for those of us who are trying to figure it out. So panic attacks and anxiety attacks are the same thing. Panic attacks happen truly. um, I mean, there's a ton of different reasons behind them, but the, the reason that they continue to happen is that once we've had one panic attack, meaning that our system got so overwhelmed. Maybe we have social anxiety and we were pushed into this very hardcore intensive situation with a lot of people we don't know. We had to give a presentation we weren't prepared for. It could be something very intense or very crazy, overwhelming. We can have a panic attack. Our anxiety gets so high because panic attacks are, it's actually panic disorder and it's, uh, it's an anxiety disorder. So our anxiety gets so high that we go into this panic state which causes like our palms to sweat, our heart to race. We can feel like we're like dying and drowning at the same time. A lot of people are worried they're going to faint. Um, so they want to sit down. Um, and some can get so overwhelmed like that, that they dissociate. So anyways, I don't want to get too into the weeds on this, but other people 
not just have panic attacks. I'm not talking those. I'm not like trying to minimize that at all. They are horrible and uncomfortable and I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy, but they like just having those not in conjunction with dissociation does occur and they feel very different. My panic attack patients would tell me all of the things I just said, like I felt like I was going to faint and it can be really, it's really fear inducing for a lot of people, for most people. Um, unless we dissociate because my dissociative patients will say like, yeah, I started to feel really overwhelmed. And it was like, oh, like dissociation can feel like a relief or at least a release to some extent. Um, now for people who are there, I have had patients and even friends actually in the past who, um, have felt like dissociation was not that release. It was like, wait, I want to go back. Like they're fighting against it and it's really uncomfortable. Um, or they just don't like that feeling of being spaced out. Like, I want to be present for this. Like, shit. And they try to get back. It's like super uncomfortable. Um, but panic attacks are always uncomfortable and always scary and just overwhelming. And you just feel like your heart's going to beat out of your chest or, you know, I mean, I've even had patients like, I was on the freeway and I just pull off. Like, I was like, oh my God, I have to get, oh, this is too dangerous. Like, it can be really, really scary and really overwhelming. So I hope that that helps explain the differences. If you think that should be a whole video, let me know down below. I think it's something that I could probably do like a deeper dive into and explaining, maybe even acting out or giving some con like more context to what it can feel like. I think I could maybe do some voiceover and act out some things. Your girl is not an actress, but I will do my best. Um, but let me know what you think, because I think that maybe that could be helpful for people. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And that question says, can you talk about sexuality and how that can affect someone's mental health? Hmm. Okay. I grew up in a strict religion that views homosexuality as a sin. I think I should need to do a video on religious trauma. Okay. I left the religion when I realized that I'm a lesbian, but sometimes it's hard for me to accept. You know, we've been brainwashed kind of. I would love to hear about the psychology behind sexuality and why it isn't why it really isn't a choice. It's how we're born. Thanks, Katie. Happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. Um, okay. And there's another one says, tagging on to this, I was with a church for seven years and I was told my mental health was a sin. I feel, I still feel like I'm a bad person for some of the choices that I made when I was not well. How can I feel okay with the path my mental health has brought me through? It's a great question. Um, we have a couple more after that. I want to start because we'll get I'll get too convoluted into too much. I don't want to lose my place. So at the beginning, this first part of this first question is how sexuality can affect someone's mental health. Now, there are a ton of reasons. Um, from a lot of my friends in the LGBTQ plus community, I've heard that because we, from a young age, a lot of us, not all, and I'm not telling anybody that this has to be their experience, but a lot of my close friends who are gay have told me that they know early on that they're different and that something's not quite right or what people expect. And that difference or that feeling like you don't quite fit in or wait, but I don't have a crush on this person, you know, because think of how we grow up. If you're a heterosexual person, I encourage you to spend just a moment thinking of how like quote unquote normal your sexual exploration was as a child and a teen. And imagine if that was taken from you and you were told, like this person in your church, that thinking or feeling the way that you think and feel is just wrong. It's a sin. Something's wrong with you. Now, a lot of people even take out the religion component, can be can hear those messages through their family or people at school or 
or or church or other things, other groups, maybe in a sport that you play. You can get these messages from a lot, maybe even in media at the time. You can hear these messages all over. And that can cause a lot of mental health issues, everything from depression to anxiety to panic attacks and trauma. Think about, you know, how that could be so harmful and hurtful to feel like you you know who you are, but you you know that who you are isn't some isn't right, isn't accepted. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow. And hopefully things are changing in a way where less and less children have to go through that kind of abuse and trauma and just terribleness. Um, but I know that based on statistics, which I mean, statistics are what whatever, you can look these up easily, but rates of depression and anxiety in our LGBT community, I want to say they're I might be exaggerating, but I want to say they're 10 times more likely to have depression or anxiety. And then if you go into our transgender community, suicide rates, it's like 25 times more likely. It's insanity, you guys. The the statistics prove that feeling not accepted um, or being told that something's wrong with you or you're not accepted, it affects us deeply. And like as a therapist, I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. That's why you got to be kind and compassionate to people. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Love who you want to love. Support other, everyone. But so that's roughly where I believe it stems from because we hear these messages. We start to internalize them, take them as fact. They become firmly held beliefs about ourselves and they're filled with shame, guilt, and embarrassment. And I believe it's a trauma. And so your religious experience was traumatizing. And so, yes, so let's get into that. I want to make sure I answer every question. So that's, I think, part of the healing process for you will be working through that trauma and finding out how to offer yourself the loving and kind messages that you were not able to receive. And even from like, even stepping back further, like maybe starting this first is like recognizing the conversations that you have with yourself about being a lesbian. What do you tell yourself about that? What When you see a cute girl and you're like, oh, she's kind of cute. And I think, oh, I have a crush on someone. Do you shit talk yourself in your head right away? If you're really curious about that conversation and see if we can find a way to make it a more loving, compassionate one, you know, just, just see. And um, then on to the final questions. I think that will really be where the healing comes from. Now, uh, someone said told their mental health was a sin. So this is kind of switching out of, you know, our sexuality and into mental health. It's the same. It's like saying that something about you is wrong and that's a sin. Like, because, and this is, this is I will do a video. I was telling Sean when I was preparing for this, I was like, I'm gonna have to do a video about uh, religious trauma. So stay tuned. I will put more work and more research and more effort into this. I have a, a book a wonderful member of our community gave me probably a year or two ago about um, combating mind controls for people who got into cults and how what that does to your brain. So I want to finish, you know, uh, highlighting and tagging that book because I've been into it pretty hardcore and incorporating some of that. Um, and I'm not saying all religions are cults, by the way, for those of you who are religious. Religions can be wonderful. Uh, churches can be beautiful and supportive in a loving community, but that's just not always the case, just like anything. There can be really good groups of people and there can be really judgmental bad groups of people. And so in the instance for this person, for seven years, they're told their mental health is a sin. I think we would all be in agreement here that that's not a good group of people. Um, and again, the same applies. Like I was talking about the first pers person who asked the question is noticing your talk about it, your self-talk. And I'd get into therapy as soon as possible if you're not already. 
um, so that you can process through that trauma, get some validation, some support. I think you'll be surprised how healing that is to have someone hear you, validate you, and tell you that it's going to be okay and that you have every right to feel that way. Um, yeah, and that will change it so that you can feel okay with your path that your mental health has brought you through. Just acknowledging that, healing that language, paying attention to how we're talking to ourselves about it and working to make it more positive. Again, like I've said over the years, it doesn't have to be to positive thought because we won't believe that, but use some of those bridge statements. Like, I'm open to the belief that this could get better, that I could think differently, that maybe I'm not a total piece of garbage or whatever you're telling yourself. You know, let's fight back little by little. It gets easier, I promise. Now, another person says, I have been through the exact same thing and was wondering if you could talk a bit about religious trauma and whether or not you believe it's a thing. I 100% believe it's a thing. I think, when, especially when we're raised in it, but even as an adult, it could still affect us negatively. But especially when we're children and we're told that there's only one way to be and this is the right way and the wrong way. I believe religious trauma is a thing. So stay tuned. I will be doing a video about it. Um, but I feel like I have to do more research to do it justice. But it should come out. You can expect it in the next you know, like two or three months. Okay. And the final question says, Hey, Katie, could you also talk about how to overcome internalized homophobia and how to be okay with your sexuality? Finding, so there's such a couple parts, like what I've already been saying still applies here, noticing your talk about it and changing it into a more positive place. But then another huge aspect of this is finding what I would call a sex positive therapist, meaning a therapist who is LGBTQ plus informed or part of that community will be so instrumental in your healing because that empathy that they can offer and that understanding is just going to be huge. Now, I consider myself a sex plus therapist um, and I've, I've read many books about how I can be a better ally and ways that I can better support in my practice with my patients and with all of our wonderful members of our community. And I do my best, but you're always still teaching me day in and day out, which I appreciate. So finding a therapist who's willing to do that work with you or understands it and knows it will be key. And then this, the final thing I want to add is finding a community around it. I think that's why like the, you know, this whole month of June is like, you know, it's pride month and people get together and they have events and they, you know, they have little, uh, like whether it's a March or, uh, you know, there's been a ton, especially cause I lived in LA forever every pride month, there'd be a shitload of events. They'd be like beach volleyball, uh, pride events, and all, all the money goes to either the Trevor Project or other wonderful. There's like a, an amazing LGBTQ community center in West Hollywood, and you can donate there, but there'd be, you know, all sorts of events happening. And I think that is really important to try to get to know your LGBTQ community where you live, or if you can't do it online, like getting some community support will be key in reminding you that you're not alone, that nothing's wrong with you. Having other people who kind of understand, maybe they've been through something like that before, people who can offer you support and a, you know, a caring ear when you're going through it, all of that. I mean, in general, we all need community, but I think if you haven't had a community of people who, who get it, we want you to grow that. And I think right now, especially there's gonna be more events, so please sign up, don't be scared, go out there, meet some new people, it'll be really, really healing and good. And maybe help you come to terms with your sexuality, you know? And yeah, I, I just can't, I can't encourage you to do that enough. Okay. And again, I know that I brushed over the religious trauma, but that's a whole video. Don't worry. I will not forget. I will open up a doc and start working on it like tomorrow. So it will come. Okay. Moving on to question number seven. 
says, lots of love to you, Katie. Lots of love to you as well. Why do I find it excruciating to feel my therapist's care for me? Mm. I don't like it when I make her cry or when she tries to connect with me or says anything kind. Interesting. I feel safer with a distant therapist who speaks to me on a more academic level, but I know this doesn't challenge my defenses. That's exactly where I would, my brain was going. It's like you read my mind. I struggle to connect with people in real life too. I suffer with ASD, trauma, and an attachment disorder. I've been seeking, or I've been seeing, sorry, my therapist for over nine months, and I still feel as uncomfortable as if it were day one. I think she's great, by the way. Okay, so ASD is autism spectrum disorder, um, which an attachment disorder and trauma, that, no wonder, so I know autistic people don't all, I just want you all to know it's a spectrum for a reason. Not everyone experiences the same things, but from what I've heard from a lot of members of our community, as well as from other amazing um autism awareness or autism acceptance people online. I know they don't like that term and I'm I'm learning. You guys are teaching me. But anyway, our autistic community um, talks a lot about the struggles to connect and to feel fully connected because a lot of the behavioral things that those of us who aren't autistic do, they don't. And it's difficult for them to just pretend they feel they're just, then they're just pretending. They're like what we call like masking, just mirroring what I do to be accepted instead of getting to be them and feel that connection. So I just want to put that out there a little bit from my limited, again, I'm not a specialist, but from what I've heard from all of you over the years and done my best to learn and research and read, that that can make the the connection and the security in a relationship a little bit more difficult to, to have it develop, okay? Also, throw in trauma. We all know trauma can cause us to struggle with boundaries. It can cause us to want to disengage from people because we don't know if we can trust ourselves to make good decisions and people keep hurting us and we can feel filled with shame. Something's wrong with us. I'm broken. I don't, you know, people don't deserve to have to deal with me. I don't deserve to have people care about me and attachment disorder. So throw all this together, shake it up. Of course, it's hard for you to, to have your therapist care for you it goes against the messages you've been told and the messages essentially you've received throughout your life. So it's, I'm actually proud of you for sticking with her. Have you told her that this is going on? Because I think this is really important and a huge a huge key in your healing moving forward because my thoughts about it are that this is indicative of the fact that that you've never received this kind of care and love and understanding and like just show someone showing up for you. The consistency is probably super fucking uncomfortable, but super fucking healing. I can't tell you how many times my therapist used to say stuff like that to me where she would say like, I know it's uncomfortable, Katie, but I promise you it's healing. It's like, she'd say it's like taking your medicine, like as a kid when it tasted terrible. I don't know if anybody ever remembers stuff like that, but sometimes like cough syrup would just, ugh, it just tastes so bitter and horrible and be like that horrible fake cherry flavor. And I'd be like, yeah but I take my medicine. Now, this is like you taking your medicine. It, it's healing to you, but it's super fucking uncomfortable. It's excruciating is the word that you used. And I understand. I can feel it for you. Like I, it, it goes against everything you've been told. And so I would bring this up in therapy because I think the work is going to lie in you un, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it unpacking, but un we'll just use that for now and I'll see if the, if it works with what I'm getting to. So like, it's going to be helpful for you to mention it in therapy so you can unpack where this belief comes from. Because the belief I would argue isn't that 
I don't deserve care. It might be no one has ever cared for me, right? And maybe maybe the deepest thing is I'm not worth it or I'm I'm not good enough or maybe it is I don't deserve care. You'd have to dig in to figure out what where is this discomfort coming from and what belief is fueling it? And what evidence have we had in our life because I'm sure we've had a lot that has shown us that this is true. And so we need to identify those things because we can't change what we don't understand, right? So we need to shine a light into that and be like, hmm, okay, so, and I'm just making things up. I do not know if this is true for this person, but okay, so when I do trust people, they harm me, hence my trauma, okay? My mom never really supported me or understood or they tried to maybe, you know, put me into some crazy therapy for my autism and I found it very painful and very abusive, hence trauma, also attachment issues, right? My mom never really came when I cried. I never really felt connected. She didn't really try to help me find a way to connect because the one belief about autistic people that isn't true, it's like a a misconception is that they're not caring or that they can't connect and they can and they're more caring than other people. Imagine what it takes for you to read other people's feelings and situations and act accordingly. Holy shit. They, it can be really detrimental. We can become super people pleasers, right? So just think of all that going on. We probably have heard some messages over our life that have helped us believe this very false and painful thing that, by the way, is not true. But that is information we need to kind of, I don't know, gather so that then we can find a way to undo that damage, which can be done. And it'll, honestly, it's through having, it's working it out with your therapist. That's why this is just so beautiful because she's offering you this thing that you don't think you deserve. You honestly don't even know what to do with. It'd be like, I don't know. And this is a bad example, but it's like someone handing me a rutabaga in the kitchen and being like, you cook with this, make it into a beautiful thing. And I'd be like, I don't know what to do. What is this? I don't understand it. I think I've seen it cooked once what the fuck, right? That's how you're looking at her love and care. You're like, I don't understand this. I've never seen this before. No one's ever given it to me. This makes me very uncomfortable. What the fuck? (laughs) So show yourself a little love and compassion. Be curious about where these nasty messages came from and then work with your therapist to slowly explore what a relationship with care and love feels like then I want you to offer yourself some what I would call like good mother messages. Like you are cared for, you are important. You're here and that is good. I'm glad you're here. I'm happy you're here. I want you here. Like all the things that we maybe didn't hear from a parent, we're gonna have to figure out how to give that to ourselves as we work in therapy to change some of those nasty thoughts that have caused us to believe that we don't deserve it. Does that make sense? I know I'm kind of like a little a little woo-woo maybe, but that's really where the healing will begin. And it's okay to be uncomfortable. Sometimes uncomfortable actually means good things are happening. But please, please, please tell her that you are experiencing this. That will be that first step towards a more more, uh, comfortable and less excruciating experience in therapy and help her kind of see where you're at. And then you can try to work, work, into a healthier way for you or like a healthier way of thinking and feeling about your life. And yeah, it's slow, but you'll get there. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. Is it possible that I have used sex as a form of self-harm without even realizing it? I'm a 24, I'm 24, 24 years old, geez, and a lesbian. I'm afraid of intimacy with women. 
I have internalized homophobia from the environment I grew up in and a lot of religious stuff that I'm working through. And I think that that's where that stems from. This video has to be created. I have never slept with a woman. However, over the past year and the obvious lack of socializing and meeting new people, I have come to the realization that I often get drunk and sleep with men. I didn't enjoy this. I would often dissociate throughout and I felt a lot of shame and guilt and anger toward myself afterwards. I have slept with many random men, putting myself in danger and not gaining anything from it. If anything, it was making me feel so much worse about myself than I did before. I've been trying to make sense of it recently and it seems to have just hit me that I did this in the past as if at the time I didn't realize. I did this in the past as if at the time, oh, but at the time I didn't realize. I'm not sure if that makes sense. However, I'm curious about whether or not you think this could be a form of self-harm. I do. I struggle with self-harm in different forms and this seems to be the only conclusion that I've come to, but I'm not a professional. And once we're allowed to go back out again, and it's safe for me to do so, how can I work on not slipping back into that habit and keeping myself safe? Thank you for everything, Katie. I believe I have an old video, actually. I bet if you get on YouTube and, and put in Katie Morton, sex as self-harm, it should come up. But I believe we can use sex as self-harm. And the reason someone left a comment on this, and it was like they'd watched that video. And so they knew. The way that I've teased this out over the years is that self-injury, we often think of as only taking one form, but we can do it in a lot of ways. I'd even argue that like alcohol addiction, drug addiction can be a form of self-harm, right? Per we can purposefully uh, cause ourselves pain or discomfort or issues because we feel like we either quote unquote deserve it, or it helps us express this other thing that we're feeling. And we, or we can try to do it um, as a way to like force ourselves to believe a certain thing or do a certain thing. So let's dig into this particular scenario. Yes, I believe that you're using sex as self-harm because you're not doing it to get anything from it. Now, a lot of people can, like, I don't have any problem with anybody, you know, going out and having sex with as many people as they want and in, in as many different scenarios as they want, as long as it is, number one, consensual. Number two, because we, like, any you know, consensual kind of already is like rolled into this. But number two is like, we want to because we enjoy it. Okay. That's, that's happy, healthy sex life, whatever it looks like for you. No judgments. You do you and I'll do me and the other person will do that. And it's all fine. It's all good. When we use sex in a way that is harmful to us, actually causes us more pain, more upset, more guilt, more shame. We are using it as a self-injury tool. And that's what's happening here, even just the way that you describe it. Um, and even the fact that it's very risky. I would be, I'm kind of suspicious and I don't know, Not I'm not diagnosing you at all, but I'm curious about borderline personality disorder or potential trauma um, because of this like getting drunk, this impulse. It sounds like a very impulsive thing, like that we would get drunk and sleep with random people and not be safe about it. Um, it doesn't have to be. I'm just saying that for a lot of my patients who have borderline personality disorder or have a history of, of repeated traumas, meaning they have complex PTSD, this is a real struggle is this impulsivity component and this feeling of like a lack of control or feeling emotions very intensely and then it's leading to an impulsive decision. There's a lot of that. Um, and so I'm just really curious about it because in the healing from this, I think that Obviously, this self-injury is coming out of the fact that you grew up in an environment, you know, like where it was super religious, and like homophobia uh, was part of the narrative. I'd, I'd assume that's why we've chosen this route. 
And, and that's also probably why you dissociate because it's overwhelming to your system. You don't want it. It's, you know, it's, it's horrible. But in the healing and coming out of this, we're going to have to find ways to better regulate our emotions, meaning that we're going to have to take care of our basic needs so we're not as vulnerable to them, right? All these impulsive decisions, we're gonna have to find a way to take care of ourselves so our resilience is up so that we don't decide to start drinking heavily or, um, go out to a, a place like that and, uh, you know, not have a friend that's going to hold us accountable or I don't know, you know, there's a ton of different scenarios we could play out here. We're going to have to find ways to regulate that emotion so it doesn't feel so hardcore. And I want you to start practicing using impulse logs. So when we feel really impulsive, if this is part of your complex PTSD or borderline personality disorder, my guess would be that you also maybe overspend sometimes or overeat or, um, you know, engage in other risky behavior. I've had patients do all sorts of different things that is very scary as an outsider. And I'm like, you need to have a friend present, you know, make sure someone's with you. Um, and so when we feel the urge to do one of those things, most likely be like eating or shopping because you're home a lot of times when that happens, we can, again, go to selfinjury.com, look at their resources and how to use an impulse log, um, hit that up, use it. It also will be in my new book, Traumatize, that's coming out. I utilize an impulse log in there as well. And... Um, fill that out. Try to slow that decision-making process down. We got to get you out of that emotion brain and into your wise mind so you can make decisions that are good for you. But I just want you to know this is very common. You're not alone. And just like anything, we can overcome it. We just need some tools. You just don't have any tools to manage all the stuff that's coming up for you. And I bet there's a ton of processing from the religious trauma mixed in with that homophobia, right? And not to mention, I don't know if, you know, if it has led to complex PTSD or if you've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but either way, there's going to be some tools and resources we need. Um, and I, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, is going to be your jam. It's going to be super helpful regardless of what diagnosis you receive. I would encourage you to check out, I have a, a work, it's a workbook. It's green and white speckled kind of, I think McKay is one of the authors. It's on my, in my Amazon shop anyway. It's a dialectical behavior therapy workbook. And you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton and you can find it that way. It's great. I can't uh, I can't encourage you to use it enough. I can't recommend it enough for people. It's really, really helpful and beneficial. Um, yeah, and that taking care of those basic needs and getting, having some resources and stuff will help you not slip back into that habit so you can keep yourself safe. You won't feel so, I don't know, not necessarily even just impulsive, but potentially emotionally driven. I could be way off base, by the way. Let me know if I am. I just, I, those are just some of the, like, my hypotheses. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, hello, hello, Katie. Howdy do. It says, lately, my anxiety and eating disorder thoughts have gotten a lot worse. I feel out of control and I am unable to use the tools that my therapist has given me to maintain, like doing yoga, progressive muscle relaxation, etc. I feel like I'm drowning in my symptoms right now. Every morning, I wake up and think, do I really have to feel so bad again today? My therapist just says that I'm going to feel better in a few weeks. Well, that's bullshit. Sorry. Your therapist is doing a great job, by the way. Those are all wonderful tools. But like, how What are? How do they know you're going to be feel better in a couple of weeks? I hate when people say stuff like that. I feel, um, I like my therapist, but I just feel like giving up and dropping therapy completely. Sometimes it feel that therapy makes it all worse because it makes me focus more on my problems. Is it possible that I get worse from seeing and talking about my problems? It is possible that it gets worse before it gets better. 
That's very common, unfortunately. When we finally start talking about things, it's like we have to dig through all these boxes of our past memories and emotions and everything comes up with it. It doesn't mean that we can't sort it. You know, it's I just moved. So that's a great reference, right? Everything's in a box. Opening it up, I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to deal with all this stuff. But then as I start to put things away, it's a mess at first. It's worse at first. And then it starts to get better and it takes time and it's exhausting, just like moving. So yes, it is normal to, for it to feel worse at first. But, and like some of the comments, again, we have wonderful members of our community offering such good insights. I'm curious about medication. I really feel like when you say you're drowning in the symptoms, that's like, it's like you're speaking my language. That's exactly what I say. And that's exactly when I tell my patients that they should talk to a psychiatrist or other medical doctor and find out if medication could be a good fit for them because your eating disorder thoughts and anxiety, I'd assume those go together. I'd assume one fuels the other and they just run off together into the night and make things terrible for us. But I think if we can get some of that anxiety down, like whether that's an SSRI or SNRI, again, I'm not a doctor, talking to a doctor, finding out what options are out there, asking your questions about, you know, any kind of worries, side effects, things you should look out for, ask all that, find out how much it's going to cost, you know, do all that stuff. I really think that that might be where we're at right now to get you out of this like drowning feeling so that then we can do the tools. Because that's the thing about therapy and medication working together, giving us the best outcome is because we have to get the symptoms down to somewhat of a manageable level so that we can do the things that will then make us feel even better, the therapy things. But if you're just drowning in it and you feel like you're anxious all day, every day, me telling you to do yoga or progressive muscle relaxation or breathing exercises isn't going to help. In fact, you might want to be like, fuck you, Katie, that's not helpful. And I'd be like, fair, totally fair. We have to get you to a point where you can actually do those things. So I would talk to your therapist about this, but also find out, like call your insurance or however the process is where you live, finding a psychiatrist prefer. I prefer a psychiatrist because they, that's all they work in is just, you know, what we call psychotropic medication or mental health medication. Um, But if you're in a rural area and that's not possible, a primary care physician is, it's okay. I just would prefer it to be someone who specializes um, to make sure you know all the options and they do a full and thorough assessment. And they should spend some time with you. I know now everybody wants to spend like 10, 15 minutes, but they should spend at least a half an hour, if not an hour on your intake. So try to find someone who will do that. I think that will ensure that we get properly assessed and treated. So yes, those are my thoughts. Okay, let's move on to question number 10. It says, hey, Katie, is it normal to feel emotions so intensely? Like after, or I feel like in a matter of days, I can go from self-confident and sure of my goals to major self-hatred and using self-harm to cope. I get stuck in the cycle and end up second-guessing my pain. I was a parentified child and just stopped seeing my therapist. I'm not outwardly impulsive and I hide my emotions from others. My motto is fake it till you make it because you're a parentified child. You didn't have any time to, or any freedom to feel how you felt. I feel like my feelings are quote unquote normal because it's all I've ever known. Is this just what it's like being a highly sensitive person or is this something more? Thank you for your help. I have a lot of potential hypotheses, so let's talk this out. Now, it's normal to feel intense emotions from time to time. Intense emotions just tell us that there's a lot going on. Like sometimes um, I will feel very angry because maybe someone was really mean to me or I had a really shitty thing happen or I'm really stressed out. Somebody cuts me off. I feel frustrated, right? 
or maybe something doesn't go the way I want, or maybe I'm just so excited, like Sean and I are going to go on vacation for our anniversary in July, and I could not be more excited, right? And that might be a very intense emotion that I experience. But most of the time, my emotions hang out in like this kind of mid-range. It's not shoop, up, down, shoop, shoop. I don't, that to me is indicative of potential uh complex PTSD, borderline personality disorder, and it can be part of the highly sensitive person, but the highly sensitive person, just as an FYI, is not that intensity of emotion. It's the fact that we can read situations and people and emotions and we can struggle with boundaries. So I don't really believe that the highly sensitive person equates to intense emotional response. I think intense emotional response can equate to other other things going on. Even like anxiety, I would uh, argue, could lead to intense emotional response or even uh, autism spectrum disorder or uh, ADHD too. So there's a lot that could be causing that. And feeling like a matter of days, I'm very curious about BPD right now, but again, not diagnosing you, you'd have to ask to see a therapist. And so you just stop seeing your therapist. I, I kind of wish you would uh, find someone new, maybe find a better fit or go back into therapy because being a parentified child, so okay, so there's all those maybe hypotheses. Then we get into the parentified child stuff. Now, the parentified child stuff means, um, I'm not surprised that this you link it to being a highly sensitive person because I would I would probably agree a lot with that And because the struggle with boundaries is hardcore. And the hiding your emotions from others because emotions and feelings and experiences don't go away just because we stuff them down. But being a parentified child means there's no time for you to feel bad or to, to do what you need to do. You got to take care of all these other people. So you don't have a chance to like, even as a younger child, to get any emotional intelligence because in your family, it was like, we don't have time for that. You have to take care of shit. And so you had to like buck up, grow up, and there was no time for you to learn about yourself. And so now, unfortunately, we have to do that learning. But it's not that bad, I promise. Part of it could be just, paying attention to your feelings, being able to identify them. Because a lot of times when we feel really intense emotions, a lot, of, especially my BPD patients, they'll tell me like, I don't know, I feel so much. And I'm like, so much what? Like try to tell, give me three and explain to me where they're coming from, right? So we got to slow this down. We got to track it back. We got to figure out like the story of an emotion. If you want to look it up on Google, you can just say the story of an emotion worksheet or story of an emotion DBT. Something should come up for you because that it's really helpful. It's like, what time is it? Where was I? What was my action urge? What did I feel? Like it's just slowing down that feeling into action reaction so we can try to track back like, hey, I guess this is coming from the fact that my friend didn't show up for me. And then I felt like I wasn't that important, but I didn't really identify that. And so two days later, I exploded and yelled at this person or felt filled with rage or whatever, right? Or sadness, intense sadness. I cried for hours. So being able to track that back is going to help you better understand and validate yourself because so often when we have these intense emotions, we feel like I'm overreacting or I don't know where it came from. So we're like, I don't even know, you know? Um, so having that can be a little bit more helpful. And then because we'll know more about maybe some patterns about when we feel these intense emotions, then that can help us better like prepare by coming up with some, I don't know, tools and techniques that would help in that moment, you know? Is it mainly in friend situations because we didn't communicate our needs? Can we find a way to better communicate things or say no when we mean it and yes when we mean it? Are those things we need to work on? I don't know. I have a lot of questions and a lot of hypotheses, but I would encourage you 
please, please, please see a therapist and get properly assessed. If you liked your old therapist, I would encourage you to go back in. But I think this is something to do with either, like I said, could be part of the parentified child, highly sensitive person. But again, I just don't think that's the full picture. Emotions that feel really intense could be part of ADHD, could be part of borderline personality disorder, complex PTSD. There could be a lot of different things. So I would want to maybe take this question and read it to your therapist and have, you know, say, I'd like to be assessed. I like to figure out what is going on so I can get some tools to manage because it kind of feels overwhelming sometimes, right? So yeah, keep me posted. Let me know what you find out. But those are kind of my my like hypotheses about it. Okay, final question. Question number 11 says, Katie, do the urges to self-harm ever completely go away? It's been five plus years since the last time I cut, but it's still the first place my brain goes when I'm having a bad day. It's incredibly frustrating that it seems like it doesn't matter how long it's been. The urge is still there. Does it ever completely go away? Yes, it completely goes away, but I have, I'm curious about this. I love this question. That's why I selected it. I wonder why your self-injury existed or exists because even though we haven't cut, it's still there. So it's still the reason for it is still there. What is that reason? Is it that um, maybe you still don't feel safe to express how you feel or tell people how you feel? Do you still maybe not feel validated in your experience? Do you feel your emotions very intensely like the person uh, above and you don't know how else to express it? Can we try out some new ways to express it? Since we've got the impulsive urge of it taken care of for five plus years, by the way, congratulations. We've got that part taken care of. So we're gonna have to figure out what's the root of this because it's almost like you had this huge tree that had grown into your life and it was a poisonous tree, right? The self-injury was taking over. We didn't like it. We had to get rid of it. So you cut it down to the stump, but we never got rid of the root system. So it's still there. And every time you walk out into your yard, you still see that stump and you're like, fuck, right? So everything time things, you know, get stressful, you have a bad day. You're like that fucking stump. So we got to figure out what that root is so that we can pull it out from the root. Now a stump is really hard and I understand, and this is going to be hard work. But if we knew where all those roots were and where they're coming from, we could find better ways to cope. We could maybe process through some of that pain. We could talk it out, get some validation, have some other ways to build up our resilience so that we can pull out that stump and its whole root ball and not have it bug us anymore. So yes, it can completely go away. I'm just very suspicious about what the root of it, why does it exist in your life? Why did it? And maybe why does it now? Because it can change too. Don't think that, oh, when I was you know, 17 and I started self-injuring, it was because of this, but now I'm 35, it feels very different. Of course it does, you're a different person. It can shift, but be curious about that. I want you to try identify that, try to identify that, and then figure out if there are some ways that we can work to heal, like better messages that we give to ourselves. Do we work on that self-talk? Do we build up some resilience? Do you know, taking better care of ourselves like that? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, the halt of DBT. Um, yeah, let me know if that helps. And also that DBT workbook that I mentioned earlier in my Amazon shop, it's there. So, you know, maybe grab that and that might be helpful for other resources and tools as well. But again, we got to dig in. We got to figure out where it came from so we can take it, pull it out from the root. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions. Thank you for all the advice and support that you offer to each other in the comments below that. I just love you guys. You guys are the best. And it's it's just wonderful to see you 
answer almost exactly what I would say. It's like, you know what I'm going to say. And I love that. And that is just, it's just great to see. So thank you so much. Take care of yourself this week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.